today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. The story in regard to uh, Brett Kavanaugh being nominated to the Supreme Court and then his eventual confirmation has created quite divisiveness and controversy south of the border uh, and, and probably around the world. I'm sure it's uh, got lots of play uh, in, in lots of circles, no matter where you go. Here's what Brett Kavanaugh had to say in regard to uh, putting all of this behind him and playing as a team player once on the bench. I was not appointed to serve one party or one interest, but to serve one nation. America's constitution and laws protect every person of every belief and every background. Every litigant in the Supreme Court can be assured that I will listen to their arguments with respect and an open mind. The Senate confirmation process was contentious and emotional. That process is over. My focus now is to be the best justice I can be. I take this office with gratitude and no bitterness. All right, let's bring in Claire Finkelstein, a professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, and with us now. Claire, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. Thanks for having me, Scott. Claire, as you watch this whole thing go down from nomination to confirmation, what are your thoughts? My big worry is that Justice Kavanaugh is not going to be the independent voice on the Supreme Court that we need Supreme Court justices to be. And this is for a lot of different reasons. Notice how indebted he is to Donald Trump. And while any Supreme Court justice is nominated by the president and then serves initially under the president who nominated him, nevertheless, this justice is going to be much more subject and much more under the thumb of the nominating president than anyone has been before. Notice that President Trump could decide if he doesn't like the way he rules for to reopen the FBI investigation against him at any point. We don't know whether or not there will be additional complaints against Justice Kavanaugh, uh, and there were certainly a lot of individuals who wanted to speak to the FBI during the reopened investigation who didn't have a chance to do it. So the very limited investigation that took place leaves a lot of rocks to turn over which for the moment the Republicans have tamped down, but Kavanaugh could be subject to having all of that reopened if indeed he does not rule the way the president or the Republicans want him to rule. So that's one big worry. So was this about what allegedly happened uh, between Blasey Ford and, and Kavanaugh, or was this about the politics behind him and keeping him out at any cost? Well, my my worry about the investigation being reopened is that they may not have gotten to the bottom of the allegations from uh, Dr. Ford, but also that there is a lot of suggestions, I think with some reason, that he may have perjured himself during his testimony. And so the worry is that if they reopen the investigation, they're going to find a basis for saying, hey, this guy did not tell the truth in his confirmation proceedings, and then there could be a whole new problem. What happens if that is the case? Well, at the moment, nothing, because you have a uh, Republican president who nominated him, who wants him on there, and a Republican Senate and a Republican House that's not about to initiate impeachment proceedings against him, since they all want him on there, but post-midterms, that could change. So you can imagine a Democratic-controlled House that could initiate impeachment proceedings against him, and if the Senate turns Democratic also, he could be impeached. Uh, Now, I think the issues of perjury would have to be investigated for perjury to be the basis of any impeachment proceedings. Um, But it might be possible for an investigation to occur, whether by the FBI or by the House or the Senate, um, and new uh, aspects of the allegations could come out and new possible corroboration, again, given how limited the FBI investigation was. So this very well could come back to bite Donald Trump. I fear it could, 
But again, my worry is about his independence. Why, why the fear, the Claire? Court. Wouldn't that be a good thing in the sense that at least justice is being served, although perhaps we had to do it not through the front door? Well, well, again, my worry is that it's more likely that what will happen is not that the investigations will reopen, but that he will cleave very closely to what the mm-hmm. president wants him to rule and what the Republicans want him to rule at the moment. Now, again, if it goes the route of impeachment, that may be different. Um, but he's got to walk an, uh, a fine line between what the president wants him to do and making sure the president doesn't have a desire suddenly to get rid of him if he's uh, too independent, and um, the Democratic complaints about him that will continue to fester. I should mention there's also a third set of complaints um, or potential complaints, which which are filtering up from the circuit court because there were complaints filed about him while he was still a circuit court justice. And normally that goes to the Supreme Court and to Justice Roberts to evaluate. And now the question is, what's going to happen to those complaints now that Justice Kavanaugh is uh, an associate justice on the court with Roberts? So will he not now be under a magnifying glass? So if all of a sudden it looks like he is leaning too much towards the president, whether it's something like Roe versus Wade or what have you, that there'll be an uproar. I think I think he's in a bind. <laughs> and yeah. and what we specifically don't want on the Supreme Court is a justice who cannot decide squarely on the merits of the case, squarely on the basis of the law, but must think about the politics surrounding each case rather than calling it based on what the law dictates. And the worry is that this justice is just too hemmed in politically to have that independence and that fidelity to the rule of law. So the Democrats will continue to to have him removed in some form. I think the likelihood of that is slim unless the House and Senate or at least one of them changes hands. The important one initially would be the House because that's where any impeachment proceeding would initiate, but he would need to be convicted in the Senate by a two-thirds majority, and and so we would need quite a different balance on the Senate for any conviction of an impeachment that initiates in the House. How about the way that this vote went down, uh, the Democrat that voted Republican, and, and as well, um, her name escapes from right now. Joe Carol, Manchin. Yeah, Joe Manchin, and then Carol... Um, uh, who, who voted? Um, who voted with the president as opposed to standing up and 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 defending Blasey Ford? How how, how how about how this vote went down and how close it was? What it was the... very very close. It was forty eight to fifty, which proportionately is even closer than the vote on Clarence Thomas, which was forty eight to fifty two, because everybody was voting. Um, but in this case, of course, we had um, Senator Daines, who was off at his daughter's wedding in Montana. Um, and um, and so it was a, um, a, a very close vote, but also much more along party lines than um, the Clarence Thomas vote was. Uh, really straight down the middle uh, along party lines with those very few exceptions. The swing vote, Susan Collins uh, who everybody thought... Susan Collins, I'm sorry, that's who I meant, yes. Susan Collins, right, from Maine, who everybody thought might uh, go with the Democrats on this one because of her concern about preserving Roe v. Wade, not only came out in favor of Kavanaugh, but, but came out guns a-blazing, giving a 45-minute speech on the, on the floor of the Senate about due process, which um, many of us think was really Ill, ill-timed and ill-placed. Uh, given that this is not a criminal trial, uh, it was not a matter of due process, but it was a matter of judging whether or not this person was appropriate Supreme Court material. So are we heading back or is America heading back to the days where, where cases will be retried? We'll see Roe versus Wade, things like this. I mean, that is the real concern of the left. Is that a real possibility? 
I do think it is a real possibility that Roe v. Wade will be overturned. And if Justice Kavanaugh is not somehow removed from the court, um, which is a, a very low likelihood, um, I think that could be where we're heading. Now, it then lies with the states, um, of course, to determine whether or not to permit abortion. Overturning Roe v. Wade would simply mean that it's open to states to pass anti-abortion legislation, not necessarily that they will. And there were certainly states that would be unlikely to do that. Um, so in many states in the country, there will be still the possibility of, of a woman getting an abortion, but it will be um, much, much more difficult, if not impossible, in other states. How does the country move forward after this? Uh, there were obviously these accusations. Then there was an investigation that was granted. Then the investigation didn't go far enough. It just seems that this will never be solved, that this is become more divisive as opposed to less. How does the country move forward on this? Yeah, I think you've asked the right question because this case, this nomination really brought out a level of anger, resentment, and activism, both on the left and on the right. And so we find a very ramped up engagement on both sides. That'll be interesting in terms of the midterms, whether it will benefit Democrats more or Republicans is not clear yet, uh, because it will increase voter turnout almost certainly on both sides. Um, but how we heal from this and whether in particular the court can recover from the extreme politicization of this nomination is something that I'm very concerned about. I'm, I'm worried that, first of all, every nomination process will forever after be trench warfare, essentially. Um, and Claire, why is this the case now and not necessarily in the past? What's changed? Well, we did see that after the Robert Bork hearings and, and after the Clarence Thomas right. hearings, and there was an increased uh, politicization of the court. And some people think that the court nomination process has never been the same since Robert Bork. But I think this ratch ratcheted it up a level, and the sense was that both sides were playing dirty I think the Democrats were particularly resentful after the Republicans had refused to hold hearings on Merrick Garland, Obama's nomination. Um, and so it seems that there is uh, the gentleman's agreement, to put it in a gendered sense, that used to hold that every pre president gets to, to choose their nominee and that they need to choose someone reasonable and uh, well-positioned and not a partisan figure has kind of gone down the tubes. And uh, Brett Kavanaugh is a very divisive, very, very partisan figure. And it's, uh, I think, regrettable that the country has gone through this battle. Uh, Mitch McConnell said this has rejuvenated the Republicans. Has it? Or has it just created another problem? So. I don't think so. The level of resentment, for example, towards Susan Collins is really extraordinary. I think a lot of women feel extremely betrayed. Uh, the collision between this nomination and the Me Too movement, I think, is something that Mitch McConnell doesn't take the full measure of. Uh, the Me Too movement is here to stay. It is a piece of progress in our thinking about sexual assault and the mores are changing among young people. The standards simply are not going to be the same with regard to sexual harassers or, or those who sexually assault. And Dr. Ford was a highly, highly credible witness. And I suspect that what really happened was the Republican senators on the committee just uh, believed her but didn't care about the allegations and didn't believe that it was cause to prevent Brett Kavanaugh from getting on the court. That's a viewpoint that may not be reflective of the vast majority of voters in the country. To have that, that opinion is one thing, Claire, but then for the president to apologize for what Kavanaugh and his family had to go through. What are your thoughts on that? 
that really is extraordinary, especially because he started out saying much gentler things and more sympathetic things about Dr. Ford's testimony, saying that he found her sympathetic, incredible, uh, and he may have scored some points very briefly uh, with uh, women voters at that time. But it is really playing to the hardcore right Republican base to make such remarks. And um, the question is whether or not the president and the Republicans who back this nomination are just badly out of touch with where the majority of the country is on sexual assault and sexual harassment. And it seemed like he was almost rubbing their noses in the wind. And how can you do this with such well, a sensitive case? he loves case? to do that. Yeah. He loves to be as controversial as possible. He, he Unfortunately, that doesn't do anything to help the divisiveness. That's right. Well, he likes to increase it as much as possible. And Brett Kavanaugh was the choice for stirring up tensions and divisiveness, as you say, uh, and he went straight for it, typical Donald Trump style. Are the Democrats innocent in all of this? Because it seems now the Blasey Ford case is passe, it's gone. Oh, so much for that. We've moved on. I think the Democrats will will keep it alive, at least through the midterms. But it also has to be said uh, that Dianne Feinstein may have lost some faith in this because there was a perception that the Republicans were right when they said that she held back this information only to trot it out at the last minute to try to derail the appointment. I believe that's very possible, and it's very possible that she rolled the dice on that and made a mistake because she could have tried to get him off the lineup before he was nominated, given that she had the information from Dr. Ford earlier in the summer. So she rolled the dice and she lost, and that may be a problem for the degree to, pe- to which people trust her ability to strategize, given the extreme tactics that the Republicans have been using. How do you think the average American is processing this today? It's interesting. I think that uh, the country is so deeply divided that there is no average American right now. Mm. So the average Trump supporter was clearly very sympathetic to the conspiracy theory that Kavanaugh raised in his testimony, uh, and that apparently played well. They really believed that he was the victim of a Democratic plot and that it was revenge for loss of the 2016 election. That extremely partisan message resonated with Trump voters. Uh, Democrats and moderate Republicans saw this as a as a real railroading and playing politics with the high court, which is supposed to be above the fray and supposed to be about uh, choosing even-tempered, fair, and open-minded justices who will call the law as they see it. And that is not where we are with this justice. Hmm. Claire Finkelstein has been with us, professor of law and philosophy, University of Pennsylvania Law School, commenting on the nomination and uh, confirmation of Brett Kavanaugh to the Supreme Court. Claire, thank you so much for the time and insight. As always, much appreciated. Thanks, Scott. You're listening to The Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Hey, remember when, you know what, I'm going to keep my uh, crappy comments to myself until after you hear this. Def Leppard leading the charge for induction next year into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. Also making the ballot for the first time, Todd Rundgren, singer-songwriter John Prine, Roxy Music, Devo, and Fleetwood Mac, Stevie Nicks. Now for her, it would be one for the record book, says Rock Hall president and CEO Greg Harris. It would be the first time a female artist is inducted for a second time after being in a group. The class of 2019 will be announced in early December. Fans can cast their vote, too, at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame website. Matt Wolf, ABC News. All right, let's bring in Eric Alper, music publicist, commentator, content creator, and shameless idealist. I love it. Eric is with us now. Eric, thanks for the time. Much appreciated. Oh, no problem. Always happy to talk music with you. You know, whenever we uh, had a nomination announcement for uh, the Hall of Fame, it would always be a big debate about, well, they should be, they shouldn't be, they should be, they shouldn't be, and where's this, where's that? And, you know, or, or you know, it, it would be, oh, look who's who's in this year. Whereas this year I'm going, oh, look who's in. <laughs> 
is it me or is this sample size getting smaller? Is there, you know, when Stevie Nicks is the big story because she's made it in twice as a female, uh, are we digging the bottom of the barrel here? Yeah, for the most part, but only for specific age groups, I think, and for specific demos. You know, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame has done a lot of inductions with artists from the 50s and 60s. And now that they're moving on to the 70s and 80s, which is kind of, I guess, a current generation of music lovers and buyers and people to attend the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame Museum in Cleveland, Ohio, you're going to end up with these kind of stories until they start really, I think, opening up their nomination process to bands that weren't necessarily American-centric all the time. You know, you look down on this list and you, you know, Roxy Music should have been in there just based on their influence or craft work, probably only second to the Beatles in terms of influence. I mean, everything that came after 1972 that had to do with computers and electronics were because of craft work. And so the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame isn't really focusing on the UK or Canadian artists at all. They're just really kind of, you know, finishing up the 50s and 60s, and now they're moving into the the bloated arena rock of the 80s, of the 70s and 80s. So, uh, is this about allowing more than uh, American uh, born and raised, or is this uh, the, the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame being stuck in a time warp? I think it's a little bit of both. You know, when you go through the, the artists that are eligible this year, um, you know, Rufus and Shaka Khan, again, for, you know, their third time. Their first time was in 2012, and then last year, and again this year. No slight to Rufus and Shaka Khan, um, but they weren't as influential as, say, Sheik was. And Sheik didn't get in. It was only Nile Rodgers, the leader of the band, getting in under a musical excellence nomination and uh, induction last year. And this was like, Sheik was a band that kind of created disco music for so many Americans, mm. too. So you have like Rufus and Shaka Khan, and then you also have Devo, which, you know, again, no slight to Devo, but they weren't exactly arena rock, you know, successful. Certainly their song Whip It was, you know, known to everybody between the ages of 7 and 80 in the world. Um, but then, you know, you kind of go through the Rage Against the Machine or the MC5, and I just think that there's a lot more UK bands that are that are eligible, especially when you talk about, you know, artists that are eligible for the first time this year, artists like Beck or Sheryl Crow or even Outkast. But yeah, so who? That's an interesting point because these are artists that are now available. It, 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 yeah. it seems that we're there's still a gap between the old genre and those people. Yeah, you know, and also um, in between what we would consider rock and roll growing up and what music is really right now, because Janet Jackson is going to be a shoe in. She's by far not rock and roll, but that's okay because neither was Madonna or neither was Donna Summer, and they're both in there as well. So I think that just because they've got two artists only that are from the rap world, N.W.A. and Tupac, I think that they need to start opening up the hip-hop and the urban music, even if it's just to cover public enemy. Uh, Pop music, we've talked about this uh, several times. Pop music has, has become so diversified over the years, not only in the different genres that it covers, but even back in, in, in past decades and such. Is this not going to become harder as time goes on, or is this an opportunity to expand your base? Yeah, I agree with, with both those. Things. And you know what else is interesting, too? When you go through the all-time leaders of Billboard Hot 100 songs, you have artists like Drake or Nicki Minaj or Taylor Swift that are just blowing these records wide open. It used right. to be, you know, if you had 30, you know, Billboard number one, uh, you know, top 10s or, or Hot 100, you were, you know, head in head with James Brown and the Beatles. Nicki Minaj has 79 Billboard placements. Rihanna is in the 60s. Like, they've demolished all of these records. Drake has something like 140. So, you go through that, and it's not so much of the styles of music, but what is officially great now when Drake can have 25 songs, all of his songs from the latest album, on the Billboard chart, 
where does that mean that you know the magic number is now 200 songs on the hot 100 it's kind of like baseball it's still really hard to get 300 wins if you're a pitcher or 300 strikeouts it didn't make it easier as time went on so that's going to be interesting to me to have somebody that that had say 150 billboard hits but they're still not in the hall of fame when normally that would just be genius like level back 20 years ago should the rock and roll hall of fame be renamed the pop music hall of fame no i think it's still with with the spirit of rock and roll and that's because of its origin right yeah i I think about that a lot when when i'm down there and i'm thinking oh you know this isn't rock and roll and then people will complain on twitter to me it's like you know donna summer is a rock and roll but i get it but i think it's also just about the spirit of it as well i think you know but a name change would be completely fine too, or even the music hall of fame and not even have a, a style of music attached to it. That would be okay by me too. What do you think? Could you change that though at this point, at this stage of the game? Would purists you, get upset? Because again, it seems what's the objective here? Is the object, objective to be a pure music hall of fame the way that it is becoming and will be over time as, as the new genres of music are more embedded in our, in our history? You know, I mean, do you stay loyal to what it was, or do you just keep expanding it like it's a it's a pop music base, right? The objective is to try to get as many people into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame in Cleveland as possible. Then you blow it wide open. I mean, what else can you do? Yeah, yeah, because you know, even when you get into the '90s, or even like even now, like, and I know that we're talking like 20, 25 years from now, but like, let's say that you know, a couple of decades down the road, you're looking at you know Keisha, or you're looking at Taylor Swift or Shawn Mendes. And these artists have, you know, they're on par with what the Beatles were doing in terms yeah. of successes. Um, these, this, their audience don't care about rock and roll or urban or rap or hip hop. They just care about good and bad music as they see fit. So if they want to keep the museum going and alive, they might want to just stop with the, with the genres of music that are attached to things. Uh, so what are we going to see in the next five to 10 years? Who are we going to see get inducted in the next five to 10 years? How do they create, how do they bridge this gap? Yeah. You know, so what they have to do is that artists are eligible 25 years after their first release. So artists that were from, you know, quickly do my math, you know, uh, like 25 years ago, would be eligible now and that's where you end up with Cheryl Crow and Outkast and Beck from the you know from the from the 80s and the 90s um so if you're looking at the artists that are that are today or maybe the last decade I think that you've got to start clearing off the 80s really really quickly because the 90s didn't really have that many bands that that started um, there was a lot of one-hit wonders in the 80s. A lot of one-hit wonders. And a lot of bands like Pearl Jam and Soundgarden and, and Nirvana, they, they're almost shoo-ins as soon yeah. as those names are getting in there anyway. And they, and they are. So realistically, you know, I, I think that they've got to start opening it up the 80s first before they even get to the artists of the 90s. Because what we're seeing now is that because of the way that the music industry is going, when record sales are dropping and everything is streaming and they make their money on the live concert, you could very well see these one-hit wonders that shouldn't be touring 25 years ago and didn't are now touring for, you know, like and you know you bring in an interest you bring in an interesting aspect of all of this Eric do you base their their uh, their admittance into the rock and roll Hall of Fame on what they did back then or the fact that you know there's some artists that didn't really have that much success back then and ha- are having as much now who are, are getting more popularity as a retread yeah I think that you've got to do it now too because things are based on it now where you have a, a a group like MC5, which, you know, always kind of, you know, kick the music industry's butt a little bit, but they're celebrating their 50th anniversary tour this year. Um, the, wow. the leader of the group, um, uh, he's got his own memoir that's, that's on the bestseller list. So they, they've kind of expanded a little bit what their influence was, including, you know, when you talk about artists like The Cure or even Def Leppard, they're, I mean, they were big back then, but they're still going. Which kind of, you know, makes me think like, so New Kids on the Block today announced a, a, a North American tour yeah. with Tiffany and Debbie Gibson. New Kids on the Block would never be, I think, even considered to be part of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. 
but now this this is going to be like their sixth record-breaking My- tour, and you, I think you've got to take a look at that and say they've made billions of dollars for the music industry and those people that are voting. I think you've got to take these artists like InSync and Backstreet Boys seriously because nobody expected them to last longer than a year, and here they are 20 years later. I remember uh, being uh, in radio and at a new Kids on the Block uh, show at CNE Stadium, and it was just an absolute uh, scream fest. It was. It, was, <laughs> it, was, it still is. I, I saw I, them last summer, and instead of the 18 year old girls or 15 year old girls screaming, it was 45 year old mothers <laughs> screaming. It was the giant party that they don't get to go out and see. Yeah. That's why Ed Sheeran or Pink are doing so well on the live aspect because you've got teenagers and you've got mom and dads that are going to the show and it's okay. It's not embarrassing anymore. I'm taking my daughter Thursday to go see Phil Collins. I'm Hmm. not embarrassed whatsoever. And I don't think Phil Collins is either. Uh, Okay. So new kids on the block, Tiffany and Debbie Gibson, the the real battle will be who's going to, who's going to lose the bet and have to open the show. Is it Tiffany or Debbie Gibson? That's going to be a brawl in a dressing room, isn't it? (laughs) Um, that actually might be a YouTube channel onto itself. Actually. That's right. Um, Who should open the show? Right, exactly. With Donnie coming in and saving the day for sure. Like, exactly. you know, they're, they're like our version of the Temptations in Four Tops, right? Yeah. On channel yeah. Buffalo all the time. Absolutely. Uh, what about Hootie and the Blowfish? What happens when they come up? Will that change all of this? Yeah, you know, that's a real interesting point because although Hootie and the Blowfish exploded with their debut album becoming the be- the biggest selling debut record of all time with over 25 million copies sold around the world, it's Darius Rucker, the lead singer of the band, that still propels that group into, um, I think, classic status because not only was he one of the very first African-Americans to break through in the country world, still yeah. to this day, other than maybe Johnny Mathis to a certain, or, or Charlie, Charlie pride. pride yeah. Yeah. You know? Um, so I think if, as long as Darius is up there, I think they, I think they'll absolutely be nominated. I don't know if they're going to get in, but I wouldn't be surprised if Darius actually gets in by himself. But you know, like you really have to, if you're the PR person at the rock and roll hall of fame, you really have to manage this. So you grow it, keep the interest and don't have any flat decades. Yeah, you know, and I think where I, I think the reason why that, that we keep seeing these names over and over again, like whether you're, um, you know, LL Cool J or, you know, you take a look at like and, and again, like no slight to LL Cool J or Todd Rundgren. I just I just don't think of them as classic legendary artists, even though the LL Cool J had a lot of hits and he's still active out there hosting award shows and and. Being an actor, I, I just think like Public Enemy has to get in there before LL Cool J. So you end up with the same artists over and over again. I think instead of flat decades, I think what they need to do is say, you know, you get one shot of going in on your first era of eligibility. And maybe what they do is that they have 150 artists that are eligible. Choose 30 artists that the fans decide, yeah. clear them on out, and then start with, you know, uh, 25 years from now, because I'm a big baseball fan, and I can kind of easily relate this to to something. This isn't Devo's first crack, uh, or this isn't their first year of eligibility. What was so great about Devo this year yeah. that they didn't get nominated last year? And the answer is absolutely nothing. There's nothing that determines them from year to year. So I say open it up to everybody that's eligible and let the fans choose the top 30. That being said, with Halloween coming, if you're looking for a cool costume, you just go to the uh, Home Depot, you buy one of those white painting outfits and then a red flower pot and you're good to go. I did it a couple years ago. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, yeah, because it's a little bit more difficult even to be Robert Smith from The Cure. (laughs) Exactly. That takes work. But you know, Eric, you bring up a very valid point because I I bet you any money, if I was going to go over to your house and into wherever you store all of your old milk crates of albums... And you said, Scott, go through those and grab me 10 nominations for the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame this year. I'm not sure I'd be grabbing all of these. I'm not sure I'd be grabbing any one of these. I would be grabbing Duff Leopard. I'd grab Stevie Nicks and Janet Jackson. 
and Radiohead. Those four, I think, have to be a lock, um, especially in Radiohead's case, because they are still one of the most influential bands of all time. And that's just, you know, with their first year of eligibility. I mean, they still command sold-out shows around the world. They mm-hmm. never get some quality. Um, but I think that, you know, like most things in the world, there's always going to be bias. And the the 400 or 450 judges that judge this and one band gets in from the fan vote, those judges are all part of the music industry that absolutely have something at stake, which is past album sales, yeah. music sales, and they're still under contract for a lot of these artists. So they they only benefit greatly from having their own artists in when they're on the record label. That's why I said just open it up to the fans and let them decide, you know. Um, it doesn't hurt the American Music Awards. It doesn't hurt any of those, the, the Much Music Video Awards. And in fact, in the era of social media, this might be the thing that gets them relevant because then you stop everybody from complaining the day after with why did this person get in and not this person? It's like the fans decide. So how can you argue with that? Uh, I agree with you wholeheartedly. Uh, at the end of the day, uh, it's... It... Maybe it's because it's like the Oscars, like the Emmys, like whatever. Uh, it's supposed to be a a group of really knowledgeable people that does this, yes. not oh, the fans. Sure. But considering they, they this whole thing survives on them putting people through the door of the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame, isn't it all about the fan? It's like I having have, the debate in sports. Is it about the player or the fans? I have been in rooms with high-profile and very high-up movie executives during the Oscars, and... Some of them have even grumbled at winning the Best Picture Award, knowing full well that is a very limited audience for specific years, when if they had their choice, they would be opening it up to comedy and Marvel superhero and DC superheroes, because that's what's making them the money now. I think that we're all a little tiny bit tired of people telling us what is great and what is not great, especially today when I can find my like-minded audience and my like-minded peers to tell me based on algorithms what I think I'm going to like based on what I've liked before. I, I, and I think that's where you end up with the ratings dropping for the Oscars and the Emmys and the Grammys and everything else that's not really fan-based. The Much Music Video Awards skyrocketed wow. this year because they were a fan-based fan show rather than the music industry telling us what we should be listening to. And that's exactly what's happening at the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. And I work in it, so I, I'm a little bit loath to like criticize anything, but I think you have to look outside your window and say, who are you to tell me what's great anymore? Or some 15-year-old fangirl from Boston. She has every right to decide who's going to go into her Hall of Fame. Than I do. Especially in this user-friendly world. What about the health of the Hall of Fame? Is it doing well? Is it growing? Yeah, you know, about 12 years ago, I, 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 have, a, I have a number of items in the Rockwell Hall of Fame that I donated when it first opened. And about 12 years ago, there was talk about them getting into a little bit of bankruptcy protection possibilities because the, just those numbers weren't there in terms of the attendance. But I think now it is. I think, you know, having a healthy city in Cleveland um, does wonders for this kind of stuff, especially during football season. I've got a couple of friends who just went down to go see the NFL in Cleveland last week, and then they stopped off at the Rockmore Hall of Fame. I think that's what they need to do, too, is start tying in all of their other activities. Hmm. Um, because even though that there may not be a lot to do in, in Cleveland, as opposed to, say, a major city like New York or, or even Los Angeles, um, it's, it's going okay. It, it's, it's fine. It still relies a lot on on donations and uh, not only donations from the public sector, but from the industry itself and the items as well, because, you know, thanks to the help of, of eBay and the, and, uh, um, and, and restaurant and restaurants like house of blues, getting to see memorabilia or getting to watch memorabilia. That's, that's not such a big deal anymore. Where we all have our own hall of fame, I guess. (laughs) Uh, Eric Alper has been with us, publicist, music commentator, uh, content creator. Eric, as always, thank you for the time. Much appreciated. No problem. Thanks so much for having me. Thank you. Talking about this year's inductees into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Feel free to weigh in on what we are talking about. And my goodness, lots of you are. Uh, And I'm still getting uh, emails and uh, all kinds of... uh, 
all kinds of uh, uh, messages from Facebook and Twitter in regard to LRT. Uh, I'll try to go through these as, uh, as much as I can. Uh, and this is from Terry at Scott Thompson at 900CHML.com. The misinformation given out just proves the decision to have LRT was too rushed. Decisions have to be made for liberal funding. Resident consultation and referendums were never done. As you recall, the city had to make decisions before budgets were even calculated. When you build a house, you don't start building it before you have any idea of the cost. I guess the election will decide if Hamilton residents want an LRT or not. Let me go back to the beginning of this note. This, this misinformation given out just proves the decision to have LRT was too rushed. The misinformation comes from an organization that's trying to stop LRT and obviously doesn't know a damn thing about it. Um, it's impossible to get something as large as this and, again, know every single uh, detail before construction starts. That's, it's the way it is with any large project of, of this caliber. That doesn't mean that it has to go bill a bazillion dollars over budget. Uh, we have a rough idea of, of what it's going to cost. That's why we got the $1.3 billion. Uh, so the information, the misinformation given out is not from government. The misinformation given out is not from our politicians. It's not from Metrolinx. The misinformation is given out is from people who or organizations who are against LRT. That's where the misinformation is coming, which is sad. You know, and, and, and I think people, and perhaps rightly so, are frustrated because they don't have more information on the LRT for the reasons that I've just said. But to give you wrong information, to tell you what you're getting as a streetcar versus an LRT, it's just plain wrong. I mean, you don't even, you know, it's like talking about building an airport, but you don't even know what an airplane is. You know, it's like building an airplane, uh, building an airport and you got a boat. I mean, you're not, we're talking apples and oranges here. We're not even on the same page. So for Terry to write the misinformation given out is all the more reason to stop this. The misinformation is coming from the no side. People are complaining there might be a lack of information or information slow to come out on a, on a project of this size. But to, to confuse it with something completely different is wrong. So I would suggest that misinformation is no reason to stop a project, but it certainly is a reason to go on a search for the real information. And again, I would suggest that all of you go to your little devices there and Google LRT. Go for a ride on the Calgary LRT or whatever other city that you know has one. And they'll, you can go for a ride on it. Sit right where the conductor does. And then you get on a car behind a streetcar on Queen Street in Toronto. And you tell me that those are the exact same. Because with a streetcar, every time the door is open... The traffic comes to a stop. And that just does not happen on a dedicated line with an LRT. And again, you want to have the debate, the debate you, want to, you want to side on one side or the other, that's great. But for the no LRT side to stand up and not even know what the vehicle is or how it operates or how it functions, again, is like building an airport for boats. I don't know. I, I, and, and this does, no, you want to have the debate? Great. You want to have the, the debate at this point? Okay. But to not even know what the vehicle is and then standing up and telling everybody that it's something that it's not, is just wrong. And not only that, I don't even see what purpose that serves. Who, who's getting the better end of that deal? Uh, let's bring in Ryan McGreal, raise the hammer. He's with us now. Ryan, uh, I was pretty surprised when I encountered this, especially at this stage of the game. Are you running into this a lot? Constantly. Uh, constantly. And hello, by the way. Thanks for having me on. I really appreciate it. How do uh, people not know what the vehicle is at this stage of the game? Well, I think you have to draw a distinction between people who know and who know the difference and are deliberately trying to misinform the public. Has the, ci has the city done a good enough job of selling this? Is, is it the city's fault that we're having this discussion? That's part of it. The city could certainly do, 
a much uh, better job of explaining and promoting the system. I will say, I guess, in defense of the city staff who've been trying to work on this, that the signals they've been getting from their elected political leaders have been extremely mixed. And so there's almost a sense of, of fear that, well, if we go out and if we, if we explain what LRT is and if we try to correct some of this misinformation, are we going to be accused of being political, you know, on a decision that's already been made and confirmed and reconfirmed? But that's the political situation we're living in. You know, if when I hear about a counselor saying, well, maybe we should hit the brakes because people are misinformed. If you're a leader, it is your job to lead. It is your job to inform people. Yeah. If people are misinformed, you have failed at your job. And they're misinformed, not necessarily from what the organizers have put forth, but from what the naysayers have, which to me seems even more odd. Why we are canceling something because people are misinformed from finding their information from the wrong sources just seems bizarre to me. Well, they have to remember, there are no really good arguments against this LRT project. So if you are still dedicated to being against it, then all you have left are bad arguments and fake do you think that's what's going? Do you think that's what's going on here, Ryan? Is that when we have these discussions? Because because normally when 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 I've got callers on or or so and, and they, they talk about something and then I I address that, then they just move on to something else. Like, well, wait a minute, we haven't finished talking about this yet. Do you find that there are people that are purposely misleading this, but meeting misleading people by calling this something that it is not? Of course, absolutely, they're doing that. I mean, this is. This is kind of uh, angry um, obstructionist propaganda 101. You come up with a really simplistic slogan that's wrong, but gets stuck in people's heads, and you just repeat it over and over and over again, and it doesn't matter that it's not true. You're going to confuse a lot of people. You're going to misinform some people, and a lot of people who might be persuaded by a good argument will just raise up their hands and go, well, I don't know. I guess we can't make up our minds about this. Uh, obviously, you can't be surprised that this is an, an election issue. We've talked about it before and certainly hope that it wouldn't, but it has got that. It has got to that point. Uh, do you think this is a time when people are learning more about LRT and reaffirming their commitment to it? Or do you find that it's swaying the other way, that the misinformation is starting to lead the, the charge? Well, as certainly the people who are peddling misinformation are doing their, their darndest to seize the narrative right now. You know, from, from candidates for mayor and candidates for council and, you know, people through the community, you know, and sort of a small, uh, angry anti-LRT group that's, you know, based around a King West business. Um, they're, like, this is their last ditch effort to try and stop this thing from happening because we are literally ready to go. We're a few months away from signing a contract and the shovels are going to be in the ground and we're going to build this thing. So this is their last gasp at trying to stop it. And they're desperate and they'll say and do just about anything to try and just stick the brakes into it. You know what I mean? Are you worried that they'll create just enough confusion that the premier will say, you know what? I don't know if you want it or not, so we can't go through with it. That's always a possibility. And, and I mean, you know, you know, it seems that there's a politician or two that are trying to do the same thing. It's like, it looks as if they're trying to give the province an out. Well, sure. And, you know, what's interesting is that what the province actually has gotten kind of steadily more and more clear about what they mean by this claim that, well, you know, you could have the billion dollars or something else if you wanted. Uh, it turns out now that it has to be either a transit or transit-related infrastructure project. So it's not a billion dollars. Unapproved, unapproved transit-related. An approved project. So we what projects know. have been approved yet that we don't know about other than an LRT? Well, not only approved, we don't know what the process for approving a project is. I mean, if we assume that this government is basically responsible and that they're responsible stewards of the taxpayers' money, then they're not going to approve a project that hasn't been carefully designed, vetted, reviewed, subjected to a benefits analysis, the whole thing. We're talking about years' worth of work before we could get to a point where another project is ready for approval. There's going to be another election in less than four years. It's I mean, a, if, we, it's, if we start now with some new idea, it'll be at least another election cycle before we even have anything to submit. It so amazes me they're willing to gamble, those naysayers are willing to gamble away on a billion dollar project like this because they feel they don't have enough information, yet the alternative is to spend it on approved government transit projects that we know absolutely nothing about. So at least we have a plan here that's been worked on for 10 years, which we have a pretty rough idea of where it's going, as opposed to nothing, yet they're willing to take the option, they're willing to take anything but the LRT and just 
hope it works out. It hope we yeah. get a nice approved project that everybody and who's going to who's going to agree to the next approved project that we can't agree to this one. Well, and the prop the, the problem is that we the people who sorry I'm getting a feedback on my line. The the people who are against this project are really against any kind of large scale transit investment. So if we had BRT instead of LRT, they'd be fighting against BRT. It's there's it's a fundamentally disingenuous position because there is no project that they actually would support. They'll just block and obstruct and undermine every step of the way. Are there some Hamiltonians who will always celebrate getting less? You know, it's it's a funny thing. There appears to be almost a kind of a civic self-loathing. It's like we don't deserve it. We don't deserve it. It's a waste. Exactly. You know, and you look at some of the anti-LRT arguments. Uh, it's a train to nowhere. Well, McMaster is not nowhere. Downtown isn't nowhere. Eastgate Square isn't nowhere. You know, these are real places with Hamiltonians living in them who deserve decent investment in public infrastructure. Where do you, how, what do you think is going to happen between now and the municipal elections of the 22nd? What, 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 what way is this going to go? I mean, I'm, I'm an optimist. I believe that eventually the truth will out and that these kind of disorganized, illogical anti-LRT arguments are ultimately self-defeating. And I hope that enough voters will recognize that in time that they'll vote the right way. All right, Ryan McGreal has been with us. You know what? I'm going to let you answer this really quick question. Uh, so a streetcar has wires above to make it run, steel wheels to make it ride on a rail. Light rail has a wire above, wheels underneath it to make it run. Streetcars have two cars joined together, right? Light rail does the same. So please explain the difference between the two. So what you're saying is where light rail will be traveling, no cars will be allowed to go. Ryan, can you explain really quickly the difference between a streetcar and an LRT? Sure. So a streetcar is an electric vehicle running on steel wheels, running in mixed traffic. And light rail transit is running in its own dedicated lanes. Now, the other part is that it has signal priority. So when it approaches an intersection, the light turns green for it. It also has stations where passengers prepay so that when the train stops, all the doors open and you can get on and off any door. The other difference, I guess, is that if you look at the Toronto streetcars, they have a lot of older streetcars still in production, and then they have a few of the newer ones. The newer ones are more accessible. So they roll, they, they, they come up to the station, and uh, if you're in a wheelchair or if you have a walker, you're rolling level from the sidewalk right, right onto the vehicle. All right, there you have it, Ryan McGreal from Raise the Hammer, and of course, uh, raisethehammer.org to find out more as the debate continues. Thank you, uh, thank you Ryan, as always. Much appreciated. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML.